Steve. I'm Viv. <laughs> and together. Together. <laughs> we, uh, we have the privilege of leading Vineyard 61 Church in London. We planted... Yeah. Uh, where are the pom-poms? I thought you were going to mess them away. Uh, we planted uh, the church nearly seven years ago. And uh, it's just a privilege uh, to, to do this stuff. So we're in South London and uh, uh, Isaiah 61 is our core scripture for the church, that we're a people carrying the mandate of Isaiah 61, which is why we're called V61. Uh, we believe Isaiah 61, where the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon us to bring transformation to, to London and beyond. Uh, and so we want to see, we're a multi-site church, and we want to see multiple thriving sites across uh, South London. It's where God lives. God lives in South London. <laughs> at, some time, at some point, we might have to get over ourselves and venture north <laughs> to the dark lands. But, uh... Are you going to do your joke about God being a South no, Londoner? No, 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 no you're not going to no. do that. <laughs> I'll do it. Shall I do it? Yeah, go on. Um, because... When, it's the way you tell it, when, when Jesus was baptised and he, and he came up out of the water, <laughs> Steve says it's so much better, <laughs> God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, I guess we've been, we've been asked to lead this session primarily because I think the sort of millennial generation are the people that God has called us to lead in London. And they're a generation notorious for being slippery on commitment and a bit suspicious of religious institutions. And so, um, yeah, I mean, then so many sort of pastoral navigation within that uh, demographic, which is very interesting. That's cool. Uh, but we love, we love the energy that it brings. When we, when we church planted, they said, you will attract people that are 10 years older and younger than yourself. And so that makes us about 28, 38. Um, but we love it. We love it. We love the energy. Um, uh, Viv plays Ultimate Frisbee. And so she, she, has, she competes with like the 20-year-olds uh, and Ultimate Frisbee every week. Um, one of the things that we've done because of our, our age group and our demographic is our current uh, sermon series we've entitled Tough Questions. It's this city-facing uh, sermon series where, uh, where we're looking at answering some of the questions that uh, people have, some of the questions that people have that can act as a barrier to, uh, to, to faith for the typical Londoner. Uh, Oz Guinness, he calls uh, our generation, uh, I can't count ourselves in that generation. Uh, we, he calls us, Oz Guinness says it's, it's this cut flower generation the, where there, there's this ongoing attempt to be above ground, to show and display the beauty whilst, whilst trying to cut itself free from the roots cut itself free from historical legacy. Uh, Mark Sayers, he's put it, we want the kingdom, but without the king. And so uh, it's a real privilege. It's a fantastic series. Um, uh, have a look at that on our YouTube. Uh, I'm not going to say, we haven't got TikTok. We're not that. Uh, but have a look, have a look and copy, copy what we've been doing uh, for the people, people around you. So, um, like all good leaders, um, you learn to delegate. So we've actually got Mike Day doing this seminar. 
And um, he's our discipleship overseer. And then together with Julia, they lead our Balaam site. Um, but you're in for an absolute treat today. He's got a background in, in evangelism and apologetics. He was on um, a speaker on the ASIM Africa team for four years before they moved to the UK. He's um, got a postgrad studies in theology at the University of Oxford. <laughs> And he's currently pursuing his master's in theology, ministry, and mission at St. Melitus. So, guys, you're in for an absolute treat. And he works for us. Yeah, he works for us. I mean, how good is that? So, I'm going to hand over to Mike. Okay. So, um, I guess I'm the slippery millennial that's going <laughs> to. That's going to share a little bit more about these these things. So it's really it's really really good to um, to be here and to be sharing with you. So um, I don't know how much this lands with you. This uh, kind of what we might call the truth challenge. Feels like for us in London, we face it at every turn that we uh, we're at. Um, this this particular challenge to truth that I'm going to describe more about later. I'm not sure how familiar it feels to you. It might feel quite far away from your local church context right now. You might not have heard of this term post-truth, or you may be intrigued by it, but not uh, quite be aware or sure of what it's alluding to or what's underneath it. So I don't know what level of familiarity you have with this truth challenge, but even if it feels far removed from where you currently are, the reality is that this kind of casual attitude to to church and discipleship actually seeps into all the different aspects of life uh, in the UK. If you think of it in a picture or uh, try to identify with it as a picture, it's almost like the air that we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. You know, we don't we don't think about the air we're breathing. We don't think about the water we're swimming swimming in if we're a fish. But uh, the reality is, it's all around us. It's 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 all around. It's in between. It's the it's the stuff that we're constantly taking in and breathing out. And so the reality is, even if you don't feel like you could identify this as present in your truth, the reality is it is. It's already there. It's the air we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. So it's helpful for us to try and come to terms with this, to grapple with it, uh, so that we can name it. And after we've named it, we can start to navigate it. And I think that that is what um, we're going to try and do some more of some more of today. So we have one hour together. There's so much that I would like to open up and to say but I'm going to discipline myself. So we're going to focus this time by considering how we lead and disciple in the so-called uh, post-truth culture. That's what we're going to try and do. And the reason I'm actually so passionate uh, about this is, uh, is because I think it's an integrity issue. For a lot of people who are considering faith and are considering following Jesus, they have genuine questions and barriers that they come with uh, to belief and to that space of considering following. And until we can answer and we can respond to those genuine beliefs and barriers, they can't with integrity believe. And so we need to be able to take seriously the questions that people have and provide the answers that will help them to consider Jesus. I kind of think about uh, the questions people have as kind of like barriers in the way of them seeing Jesus and who he is. And if we can help to graciously, gently remove those barriers, they can see Jesus more clearly. They can consider him. They can follow him. So that's the reason I'm passionate about this. That's the reason I want to take these questions and these doubts seriously. So in our, in our current culture, we don't like to talk of exclusive approaches to truth. And Christianity is especially targeted as intolerant, right? It's, it's, a, it's an accusation that we may be familiar with as, as Christians. We're an intolerant lot. 
It demands that we respect each perspective equally and accept all approaches to reality without privileging any one over against another. This is what's called pluralism, living as one amongst many and being able to accept each of those as being equal. But it's worth asking, and this is something I always wonder and think about, is if a distinction is possible between two things, between the equality of people, all people being equal, but not all ideas being equal. Is there a way for us to think about it in that way? I'm just gonna put that out there, leave it on the side, and maybe we can come back to that a little bit later. So here's the goal for this time. Here's what I feel like God wants to, us to try and engage with today, is to firstly is understand the complexities that are in front of us in this area, to understand the difficulties, but then more importantly, actually to come away with more confidence in committing to discipling people in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So we'll do that by doing a bit of upfront talk. Hopefully I'll give a little bit of insight into this, a little bit of uh, small group discussion together, and then Q&A at the end, Viv and Steve are gonna join me and we'll take some questions uh, from the floor. Does that sound okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're gonna start by identifying and then we're gonna try and navigate. So we're gonna identify where are we as a culture and we're going to try and navigate from there. What does the church do once you're identified where we are? Firstly, let's identify. So as mentioned, Westerners have a kind of allergic reaction to truth claims that are perceived to exclude. There's a little bit of an allergic, well, that doesn't sound right because it sounds like by saying that, there's someone that is excluded and that is something that I cannot tolerate, your intolerance. So vague and inclusive spiritualism, absolutely yes. Uh, but dogmatic beliefs, creedal faith, no. Those are exclusive. And I think this is quite clear from, from the slogans that we hear around us that we pick up uh, that people continuously say. Things like true for you, but not for me. Or each to their own. Or what about one that's uh, said all the time, you do you. You do you. And these, if you think about these as like slogans or in another way, almost like creeds, low level creeds that people adhere to. And almost in some ways we can sometimes not actually graduate beyond the level of a creed or like a, a slogan in the way that we live. We have a slogan that we constantly refer back to as that thing that is an authority that guides us. And so people can throw these out. They might sound like throwaway lines, but actually they're deeply embedded in the way that they see the world. They've become like a kind of secular creed. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin actually has a book that um, she's called uh, Secular Creed. So as a, the Christian creeds that we have, they are secular creeds that operate today. And these are some of them, you do you. You can probably sum this up uh, really well in one picture. And it's a picture uh, that'll come up in the screen in a moment, it's of the elephant. And and I'm sure, have you seen this before? Anyone seen this picture before? No? So what's going on in this picture is, is you've got four blind people who are apparently going on the pursuit of truth or God. And as they approach the elephant, which stands in uh, for truth or God, uh, they are trying to give descriptions of what it is that they are finding. So one comes along, blind person comes along and says, uh, no, the elephant is like a big snake. They grab the trunk and they say the elephant is actually like a snake. Another comes along and they say, actually, no, the elephant is like a tree stump grabbing onto the leg of the elephant. Another comes along and says, actually, no, the, the elephant is like a sheath of leather grabbing onto the other. Still another comes along and says, actually, no, elephant is like a furry mouse grabbing onto the tail. 
And what is basically people are saying from this is that actually there, there's no one way to describe the truth. We all come blindly in this pursuit of truth and we grab onto parts that we can, but every description is valid. Every description is equal. No individual religion has a corner on truth, but all approaches and beliefs should be viewed as equally valid. This is known as relativism or subjectivism. It's all in the eye of the beholder, or it's all in the experience of the one experiencing. And all of that is valid. All of that is equally true. So this kind of confusion over truth that we see and we experience all around us, that we hear in those slogans, that we see in pictures uh, like this, is actually not very new. There's an exchange in the scriptures between Pilate and Jesus. I'm not sure if you can already be recognizing where I'm going to go. John chapter 18, where Pilate is interviewing Jesus. And we read in verse 37 of chapter 18, Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? What is truth? So we can already see there's a bit of skepticism here on what the truth is. And if there were such a thing as truth, how could we ever know what that truth is? Is the truth knowable, even if the truth were to exist? What is truth? So this confusion has been around for a long time, but something unique has happened in the last kind of 200 years. There's been a dramatic shift in our thinking about truth. We've moved from being kind of a servant of truth uh, perspective to being suspicious of truth. So the center of authority has kind of moved from being the truth is outside of me as something to be discovered to the truth is within me as something that I get to personally express and tell you about. So we no longer serve a truth that's outside of us. We create the truth from within or we become suspicious of anyone who claims to have a grand, absolute, overarching truth. This has been the huge shift that we are seeing around us. And there's lots of reasons for this. And some of them aren't uh, particularly bad. Some of them are understandable. A kind of globalizing effect of movements of populations around the world has meant that difference used to be over there on that continent and that place. And we are all the same and hold similar beliefs to actually being on our doorstep next to us and our next door neighbor who has a different religion, different belief, different ethnicity, whatever it may be. That the globalization and movement of people has led to this concern about being inclusive and tolerant for difference. And that actually is a really good thing. But that grown up without God leading that particular picture of diversity has led to relativization the truth no longer matters. In recent times, the influence of, of post-modernity has been dominant. That is to say that truth is no longer discovered, it is created. Who creates it? Individuals do. How do individuals create truth? On the basis of what one feels to be true. It seems like the one virtue that we can all agree on is the right to authentic self-definition and expression. That seems to be the one truth we can all say we uh, adhere to in a culture that no longer has God as king. So 
Steve, you can get that next slide there. In 2016, you can't see this uh, very well, but in 2016, um, these processes, these movements that we've been going on as, as a culture for the last few hundred years culminated in the word post-truth being named Oxford English Dictionary's Word of the Year. So 2016, Oxford English Dictionary named post-truth its Word of the Year. That is significant. That is significant. And what post-truth really describes is the place of personal preferences and feelings over facts and truth. We're a post-truth generation. It doesn't actually matter, even if there is something that is objectively true, true all the time for all people, because even if there is that kind of truth, my preferences and my feelings sit above it. That's what post-truth means. So if you were to bring all of that, all that I've just said, into the context of the church, the collision starts to feel quite obvious and quite clear, right? The tensions are obvious. There's no longer a binding truth for all people. How do you preach? How do you proclaim truth? How do you say, follow Jesus, not just because this is my preference or a good idea, but because it's true? When the, truth, when the church makes truth claims about reality, ethics, or humanity, they are viewed as oppressive, arrogant, and intolerant. The collision, the clash is clear. It's obvious. So I want to give us a moment just to pause. I know that that's a lot. That's quite a sweeping uh, series of terms, lots of information. I want to give us a moment to pause and to turn to each other in smaller groups and just reflect back to each other some thoughts and feelings on your experiences of that kind of truth. What is your experience of this approach to truth in the culture around us? Have you got any? Have you got concrete examples, family members in your church itself? How has it personally impacted you and your church? And then there's a bonus question there, if you can get to it. Um, how do you define truth? So if you don't get to that, that's fine. But I think it'd be great just to sit together, reflect back some of what we are hearing and thinking about, and we can feed back a little bit um, after a few minutes of chatting. So maybe just groups of three or four uh, chat together that first question, and then we'll take it from there. Do you want to finish up that final contribution? Okay, so it looks like there is a lot to talk about, um, lots of chat. It, I mean, it, we, we'll definitely make more time at the end for feedback and Q&A, but is there any group that would particularly like to share an insight or experience, I'd love to hear one or two for the benefit of the rest of us. Uh, I know that the, you have things because there was chat. So <laughs> it would be great to hear one or two people, one or two groups, um, feedback. Otherwise, I'm going to pick on people. Yeah. yeah. Tuesday as a boy, and 
Wednesdays of your life. I'm not getting into trans thing because that's already in the school. The point is that my daughter's trying to balance her religion and her beliefs mm -hmm. against this. Well, I'll be whatever I want today and whatever I want tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I'm just concerned as how she walks out that truth. Because yeah. they've already been accused, my children, of being intolerant. Mm -hmm. and, and they're only in primary school. They haven't even had secondary school yet. Yeah, wow. Thank you. That's a really live example. I'm sure many can relate to things of that nature. Another one, another, another bit of feedback you want to share? Yeah, yeah. So the bits that already kind of I've pre-decided I agree with or like. So again, that movement of the sense of authority from being on the outside that we discover um, versus the truth that we discover on the inside that we express. Um, we can see that in lots of different ways. Really interesting. Yeah. Yes, I think everyone heard that, right? Yeah. So the, the prevalence of feelings and it's not actually just so much about what I think, but it's about what I feel. And that being the kind of center of the center of that authority, um, what I feel to be true is true. Um, and, and if I feel something different tomorrow, then I follow that because that's authenticity is always aligning myself to what I feel that I am. Um, and I cannot not be authentic because that's the great virtue that we hold to. Really, really interesting. I just want to hold those in your minds, hold those conversations in your, in your minds, because these are, these are live experiences. These are real things that we are considering how to bring the gospel into, how to, how to disciple in the midst of. It's, it's a real challenge. And it doesn't help us to not be aware of the depth of those challenges. They are very real. So let's, let's kind of just hold that there for a moment as the identification part of where we are. But then the question is, well, where do we go from here? How do we start to navigate uh, some of these things? And I, I don't have all the answers, and I definitely can't give you all the answers in 10 minutes. Um, so I'll try and open up a few thoughts and reflections that I found helpful myself in speaking to students on campuses, in evangelistic kind of outreaches and just conversations of people of different worldviews. These are some of the things that I, I found uh, growing as convictions for, for myself. So I hope they, they can be helpful to you as well. So where to from here as the church? Well, Jesus's engagement with pilots is actually a really powerful model of engagement for us. Um, it's, it's a, it gives us something to work within um, parameters wise. Jesus lovingly points Pilate in the direction of truth. 
here he is, uh, you know, as a, a minority, a, a person who's about to be condemned to death in the halls of power uh, with the person who has the, the power to put him to death. And he is totally confident in the truth of his being sent by God to testify to the truth. There's no shrinking back in this instance. But if you read the whole interaction, it's striking how much opportunity he gives uh, for Pilate to work his way there, to get there. He lovingly coaxes him and directs him uh, to see. And he makes astonishing claims about himself to Pilate, uh, which is also interesting to consider. So he, he lovingly points him in the right direction. And Ephesians 4.15 actually explicitly commands us to speak the truth in love, truth and love. We rarely need both of these things uh, in these days. And one without the other, we run into trouble. Uh, if we have love without truth, I remember one of my uh, tutors saying that if we just have a love that in an unqualified way affirms whatever anyone wants to do and says, we intuitively know that that's not the way that love works. A love that just uh, unqualifiedly affirms uh, any, whatever anyone wants to do is actually just love that's degenerated into sentiment. It's just sentimentality. It's not, it's not love in the strong sense if we sacrifice truth and just uphold a kind of affirmation of whatever is asked for. But then if we have truth without love, we end up becoming those people that uh, are not so nice to be around at all. We need these both together. We need truth and love, speaking the truth in love, not sacrificing one or the other. So there's three things I think we can lovingly point out and embody uh, to our culture around us. So firstly, the first thing I think we can point out lovingly to those around us is that truth is unavoidable. And this is also something we need to internalize ourselves. Truth is unavoidable. We may say that we aren't so sure about truth or if truth exists, but is that view actually livable? Can you actually live that view? Well, I'd, I'd suggest you can't. Yes, the objection is often made or given, there's no such thing as truth. But then we've got to ask the question, well, is it true that there's no such thing as truth? Is it true that there's no such thing as truth? Because if it's true that there's no such thing as truth, then what you've just said to me is nonsense because I, I, I cannot take it seriously. I can't live what you've just asked me to live. It's an impossibility. So anytime you try to categorically or absolutely deny truth, you end up affirming its existence. You, you, you can't escape truth. The moment you try to make a claim of anything, you've made a truth claim. We can't escape truth. Truth is unavoidable. And so what that means in terms of application is we're not actually playing a game of preferences in church, in our discipleship, in leadership. We're actually, we're on the ground of truth. Truth exists. It cannot be avoided. We can't live without it. So as we lead and we disciple in our churches, we can do so with humble confidence. We are forming people according to the truth of the gospel. We don't need to be ashamed of saying we're playing on the field of truth. We can't avoid the truth. It's a reality. We can't live without certain truth claims and appeals to truth. So I, that has emboldened me as I think about speaking things with conviction. I want to do that knowing that actually truth is a real thing and we all need it, even if we say that we're not sure about it or we don't. So firstly, we can lovingly, lovingly point out as appropriate 
that truth is unavoidable. And that's not to one up people. That's not to intellectually put anyone down. It's just to just to reset the playing field a little bit. To say actually we're we're on the same field here. We're not talking about preferences. We're talking about truth. Second thing is that all truth, by definition, is exclusive. This is one of the biggest things that I've seen uh, as kind of abhorrent to people when they think about Christianity is you're so exclusive. You say that Jesus is the only way. What about all the other ways? What about all the other beliefs? But the moment we make a claim for something, as I said, we've actually excluded something else. So when we say there's no such thing as truth, we exclude those who say there is such a thing as truth. When we say there are many ways, we exclude those who, who say there are few ways or one way. Or those who say there are few ways exclude those who say there are many ways and one way. And those who say there are one way exclude those who say there are few ways and many ways. No matter where you're playing in this particular uh, field, if we can call it that, is you're being exclusive. The moment you make a claim for something, you've made a claim against something else. You've excluded something else. So all truth by definition is exclusive. So yes, we believe that Jesus is the only way to God. But I think this is the important part. We, we are not denying that. That is, that is what we are saying. That is what we believe. That is what the scriptures teach. But we can't at the same time draw attention to his radical inclusivity. He is exclusive, but he is inclusive in that all are welcome. He will turn away no one who calls on him to be saved. And I, that has, again, emboldened me. I'm, yes, I am saying that we come to God through Jesus, but you're welcome. Like everyone is welcome to come through him. And if we just emphasize the exclusivity without emphasizing the inclusivity of the call, I think we find ourselves running aground again. So how something to think about is how do we make sure both of these come across in our preaching and discipleship. The exclusivity and the inclusivity of Jesus. Is that something that we are willing to speak about? Is the call, the invitation that we extend inclusive enough, as inclusive as Jesus' invitation? That's a personal challenge to me in my preaching. Why would I want to be unnecessarily exclusive on things that Jesus would not be exclusive about? The front doors to our church need to be really wide. Jesus' invitation is an inclusive one. So that's the second thing I think we can lovingly point out, we can lovingly embody uh, in our churches, that all truth by definition is exclusive, but Jesus is inclusive. He's welcoming you in. Come and follow him. All these different things that you're worried about, your objections, your barriers, we want to take them seriously. But let's ask the question, like, what do you make of Jesus? What do you, we can't, can't put Christian morality on those who wouldn't call themselves Christians yet. What do you think about Jesus? Do you think he's worth following? Do you think he could potentially be Lord? These are the places we want to start with those who are worried about exclusivity. And then the third thing before we land with some, some Q&A in, in a minute or two is we can lovingly point people to Jesus, as I just said, who's the person of truth. Jesus is the person of truth. See, Pilate actually asks the wrong question. It's really sad. He, he's got Jesus in front of him, the Lord of the universe, the, the second member of the Trinity in the flesh. And he has a moment to engage with Jesus and ask any question. 
and he sarcastically dismisses him with a what is truth. Wrong question, Pilate. I would have loved to have said to him. <laughs> Not what is truth, who is truth? John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we are communicating with people, we're not trying to turn Christianity into a propositional kind of belief statement that you are sent to. Yes, what we believe matters. Um, yes, we need to contend for the faith. We need to do all these things. But the reality is at the center of our faith is the person of truth, is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not so much a proposition as it is a person who's at the center. And relationship with this person means that we experience a deeper relationship to truth in all things as we come into relationship with him. Reality doesn't diminish when you become a Christian. It explodes. It becomes bigger. It takes on more nuances and color and beauty as we come into relationship with Jesus, who is the truth. So I found these things to be really, I, hope, I mean, they're not that profound. I'm sure you've heard them before, but just helpful to rethink about them and to think, how, how do I lovingly start to point these things out to our post-truth culture? How, how do I start to feel confident about the fact that I can hold to truth, that we're on the field of truth, that every time anyone makes a claim for something, they've excluded someone else? I'm not doing anything different to anyone else who holds to anything as important or true in their lives. The question is not, is there a truth, but what reasons do we have for believing what we believe? Are there good reasons? And Jesus is the truth. He is the way. Come to him, the person at the center of our faith. So as we, as we finish, I want to just throw up that, that picture once more and uh, just take a, take a look at it. Take a look at the elephant again of truth. See, the major problem with this analogy to endorse the view that all truths are equal and that all of us are groping in the dark and everything's valid is that the glaring omission is that all of the attempts to describe truth are wrong. There is an elephant in the picture, after all, that is not a snake, that is not a leathery bit, that is not a tree stump or a furry mouse. There is an elephant. There is something that objectively exists as something different from those descriptions. That is what it is. And I don't know if you can pick up the one other omission that is often left out. How do we know? Exactly. How do we know that, that uh, these people are wrong? It assumes the picture that there's a fifth person. There's a fifth person that is looking at all of these people who are trying their absolute best to come to the truth. But, you know, as we would say in South Africa, shame. They've, they've, they've done their best. But the reality is um, they're just groping. They're doing their best. Can't you have some sympathy for them? It's quite a, in a sense, it's a little bit patronizing because they're not the fifth person. You know, they can't see the whole picture. But this analogy assumes there is someone who's standing back with eyes to see who can see the whole picture, who can see the truth. Also that, that too, yeah. <laughs> so Jesus, if we were to think about this fifth person analogy, Jesus is that, that fifth person who can see the whole picture. He is sent by God to testify to the truth. 
He is truth and his testimony is true. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, uh, I quote him every single time I speak, is he, one of my favorite quotes is this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, we see because there is one who sees all truth. We see because there is one who sees all in truth. We're coming to the person of truth. Our eyes are open so that what we see doesn't decrease by becoming Christians. We see more. We see further. We see everything else because of what has been illuminated through Jesus. So I want to leave us with that um, and leave it there so that we don't fall asleep. Um, and I want to give us just, for, just two or three more minutes to discuss in our groups before Q&A so that we can just wake up again. Uh, just to discuss one way you could lovingly engage your community and friends with the truth of the gospel. Just based on the second part or anything that you've heard today, anything that's freshly stirred, how could we lovingly do this as churches, as sons and daughters, as friends? How can we engage people with the truth of the gospel? So take two or three minutes and then we're going to have Q&A. Okay. We have, we have a little over 10 minutes until we're finishing up so that you all get a well-deserved break uh, before this evening. So we're going to take questions for the next 10 minutes and then perhaps for those who want uh, can stick around and we'll do some, some prayer and ministry if anyone's keen. But um, we have about 10 minutes. So if you do have a question, could I ask, just try and keep your question to... Um, about 15 seconds, uh, <laughs> unless it's a very complicated one. But if, if we can just try and be mindful of all those who, who have questions and keep them short, that would be helpful. Great. Let's go for it. Yeah. Real practical. Do you have small group curriculum that you've written that is accessible on some of this apologetic materials to initiate? Uh, is the last part? Say the last part again, sorry. Uh, uh, that counters some of this or brings some uh, of this forward. Well... So the question just for the um, recording is, um, do we have any material for small groups in particular that counter some of these um, objections about truth in particular? Yeah. 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 I mean, there may be that I'm not aware of, but we're, uh, Steve said we're currently doing a series called Tough Questions, and that's a six-part series of looking at some of the biggest and toughest questions our culture is currently asking. Um, last week, Amy or Ewing started us off with, uh, isn't Christianity uh, opp oppressive and intolerant? No? Oppressive and violent. And then this week, I'm doing, uh, how could loving God last so much suffering? Um, so just, yeah, those are the first two. And then there's four more. And we actually have all of those online. Um, after each talk, they'll be posted online. And so those are... Those are there um, for anyone to look at or download, but we don't have a curriculum so much. I was going to say, you're, um, we then have s small groups that mirror what, what's going on um, on Sundays. And so they're then a load of questions that then we've, well, Mike's written, um, <laughs> uh, to like delve deeper in a, on a small group basis as well. We, we then are, are doing a uh, thing called Triple 20 Zoom where it's one hour, we'll have 20 minutes to 
to discuss, answer any of the, uh, to discuss what we've been doing over the series. We'll have 20 minutes of question and answer and then 20 minutes of a um, activation and prayer. And so uh, with curriculum, they either base on a pastoral level so you have things like freedom in Christ, looking at how we can get prayer and that, that kind of pastoral, or there's more kind of theological side to, so uh, vineyard, vineyard theology, vineyard training, no, there's kind of off the shelf. Um, I don't know of anyone which is looking at a curriculum uh, that merges it together. It's more kind of pastoral or it's a, uh, a thinking, the kind of the truth and love, uh, they kind of go on, each one of those as opposed to there's a, a curriculum for both. Next question. Let me try and summarise that. So are we at peace as we navigate these bigger questions? And the gospel is offensive. Mike. <laughs> um, I would just say yes. I, I, I mean, Steve is perfectly at peace, so he... I, I'm happy to be hated um, and persecuted for my faith, but I want to be hated and persecuted for the right reasons. And I think I th there's no need for me to make denouncements against... Uh, I mean, I know that's not what you're saying, but I, I think the perception sometimes of Christians is we we make denouncements, but we don't engage. You know, we make denouncements, but we don't discuss. We, you know, you don't take our questions seriously. You don't listen. And I, I think I see Jesus listening. And, and in every circumstance of every person, he works specifically intimately with what they're going through. And, uh, and Jesus himself asks something like 300 plus questions, you know, in his ministry and receives lots more from people. You know, so there's a sense in which questions are a part of the ministry of Jesus, part of his pastoral approach. And I, I think I want to, at the very least, give my best shot um, to respond to the harder questions. But I'm happy to give the Christian answer and be hated for the answer. Like, I, I, I don't mind that. Um, I don't like being hated. <laughs> but if in saying something true that I've said in love, I'm not liked for that, I'll accept that. Um, yeah. We're also, you know, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful women and men lay hold of it. Uh, so we understand that, but also we have a... The devil is also for, trying to forcefully advance with his principalities, his powers and strongholds. Individuals, we're operating on a kind of stronghold level in terms of their minds, their thoughts, the, the constructs. Um, some of the stuff uh, Mike has just shared and others, we're dealing with other powers and principalities at work. And so from a pastoral level, we're, we're, we're looking at individuals in terms of their thinking, in terms of their thoughts, in terms of the strongholds, but there is a there is a there is a deeper and a, a work at play that. And if the church is silent, 
then people are, are listening to, we've got the enemies, the enemy who's trying to forcefully advance. And so there's something as a church we have to go, actually, we have something to say to not target just the, the strongholds of the mind, but also the powers and the principalities that have influenced the strongholds of the mind. And so I think there's something, something about that for us to do as, as churches. I think you had your hand up, yeah. Part of my training in, in this stuff was um, a, a sympathetic approach, which is to say that behind every question is a questioner. And so there's an approach that is try and win the argument and try, and we've often heard that, you win the argument, you lose the person. And, and so how, how do you recognize the, the questioner behind the question? A real person who has got real questions and, and often the presenting question is not the real question I've always found. So uh, my, my approach, is actually probably to answer last. Um, like, try and delay my answer a long time into the conversation uh, until I can actually get a sense of like, who, who is this person? Have I taken an interest in them? Um, have I actually heard them? And have I actually got to what is really going on here in the question that is the heart question as opposed to the presenting question? And so for me, the, the response is yes. It's it, like John Stott called the double listening where you are listening to people, you're listening to the culture uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you are listening to the spirit, you're listening to the scriptures, and you are, are bringing both of those together in any given moment of interaction. So that, that is definitely the approach. I'm listening to them, I'm listening to the spirit, and by double listening, hopefully I'm, I'm getting to the, the heart of the, of the question. And sometimes I, if I feel it's right, I'll just say to someone, like, what for you is the biggest reason? What is the main reason you don't currently believe in Jesus? Like, that, that you know, that cuts through all of the presenting questions and the issue-oriented questions, you know, that, that can just be distractions and, and gets to the heart of it. Going, actually, I once asked that of a family member, and she, she responded and said to me, I'm, I'm afraid that if I become a Christian, I'll lose my freedom. There it was. That was the heart issue. And, and we could work from there. Um, so, yes, I'm listening to the Spirit. Um, I'm asking God for help. But my strategy mostly is to see the questioner behind the question and then to question the questioner. So clarify the question by asking more questions and go on that journey together and see where God takes you. I think, I think for me, when we were considering planting a church, I think somebody said, what people actually just need are mums and dads. I thought, oh, I can probably do that. Um, and I think that's regardless of whether you're married, single, have any children of your own. I think we're called to be mums and dads to people. And I think what that means is that truth and love go together. So you don't let your children just run off and do whatever they want. 
Um, but there's course correction within that. And I think um, somebody came to, somebody said to me the other day, they were like, why doesn't the church support me in my decisions, in my behaviour? I was like, but we absolutely support you because we want the best for you. And this is, this is why God has designed it certain ways. This is what God has suggested for your life. So absolutely, we want to see you flourishing. So it's not just about loving me and supporting me because actually that's not true support and that's not what a parent does. And I think my... My, I, I've just been feeling all today is just like people just want to be loved and known and seen and um, celebrated for who they are, but within the sort of undergirding of truth. And I think just that truth and love, like people need mums and dads. They absolutely need mums and dads that just come alongside them and guide them in love and truth. We, uh, we're going to have to shut this baby down. Um, <laughs> We, we're going to be around afterwards uh, if you have some questions. I just wanted to just to pray for some individuals as well. And um, if you have some questions, we'll be, we'll be around at the end. Um, I want to pray for people that uh, you are called to be an apologetic. You're called to be able to explain the gospel and be able to communicate the gospel. You feel like you want to move into that field. If if that is you, would you stand up? We need people who are able to communicate wisely to then uh, release. We need people to be able to unlock minds in order to unlock hearts as well. And so, if you're just near those people, let's just uh, let's just stretch out your hand. Just place your hands upon them. Lord, we bless their minds. Uh, we pray for uh, Ephesians 1. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We pray that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened, that they may know the hope that they're called to. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for their minds. We bless their minds. Give them, may today be a springboard for uh, deeper thinking, more reading, more understanding, listening, hearing, speaking to people. May they be brave. May they be, be, be bold. And God, I thank you, your kingdom's advancing. Put on them the, the heart of the gospel and may they forcefully advance the gospel in your name, Jesus. Give them coincidences this week, next week, throughout their lives where they bump into people who have questions, deep desires for truth, deep deep longing to know what's what's what. And we pray for these individuals here. Fill them, equip them, release them in Jesus' name. Keep, keep praying for them, keep ministering. If you have some prophetic words, senses, just keep, uh, just do what you do best and release the power of Jesus over them. We're going to be around afterwards. Otherwise, enjoy your dinner and see you tonight.